Hi, I'm Yushuan Su. And I'm Connor Campbell. You're listening to Into the Unknown. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Into the Unknown. Welcome back from Mexico, Connor. Thank you. Do you have any, uh, before we start, any news, any updates? Well, I finally got COVID after two and a half years, (laughs) which is not great. It's annoying because I feel like if I hadn't tested, I know this is very irresponsible of me, but I'd probably still be in work. But hey, it is what it is. I'm stuck at home now. You've extended your holiday. I have. Yeah, that's very true. Four weeks off work. It's going to be strange getting back into it next week, but hey, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that next week. That's a problem. Well, um, for next week. Yeah, well, this episode isn't about COVID, funnily <laughs> enough. And we've actually got a really exciting guest today um, to talk about rugby and medical school and a lot of the um, sort of issues and big topics around rugby, around women's rugby in specific. Um and joining us today, we've got Rowan White, who played under 20s for England and played for Saracens, won a couple premiership titles. Nothing big about that. But um, she is now also entering her final year in medical school at King's College London. So it's soon to be Dr. Rowan White. Um, and I want to say friend of the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Rowan. Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to be here. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, really appreciate you coming on because you had your um, final exam of the year yesterday, didn't you? So I did. So excuse the sore head and the rough voice, but <laughs> it's good to be here nonetheless. Thank and you, Sean, made me, made me do it at eight o'clock in the morning because he's just nice like that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I See, look, I... Um, I have to train in the mornings and I've been doing this for the last five or six years and it's still not made me a morning person. So I actually completely sympathize. I actually am a morning person. I, even when I was like <laughs> 14, 15, 16, most parents are literally dragging their kids out of bed by their hair to try and get them to school. I was up and about ready to go. It's just since I started drinking, it's all gone downhill. <laughs> that has been the downfall. It has. <laughs> So, um, yeah, before we kick things off, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, sort of your background, how you got into rugby, uh, your sort of journey through that and then and then medical school as well. I mean, that's quite a quite a big, big uh, difference from from professional sports and um, how you've have you found balancing that for a couple of years. And yeah, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so. Rugby, let's start with rugby. So I started when I was, I think, seven. Um, and as a kid, I just loved any sport and every sport. It was obviously just chucking a ball about, running around a pitch. It was just, um, that was my happy place. And one of my uh, good friends at school called Ed, his dad ran, was the coach of the local club. And he was just like, come on down, have a go. So I turned up with my trainers, didn't know the rugby boots existed. Um, and loved it. So that was tag rugby initially. So I played a year of that. And that was all boys. So I think at that stage, it was me, one other girl, and then all boys. And then at under nines, we started contact. And then at under 13, so I've played under 12s with the boys. And then at, uh, at the end of that, I then had to move to a girls team because at that point, boys get big, 
and it's just a safety thing guys have to move over and at that point I was very very close to stopping rugby because there was just nothing on offer um anywhere in Oxfordshire so that's where I grew up like we couldn't find anything to do with any girls rugby at all and then luckily uh, I think it was right at the start of the season so I'd had the summer off not having a clue what I was doing and probably gonna stop uh, the dad of the girl I played cricket with was like oh actually there's a I've heard of some kind of training session for girls coming up time it was the county trials but they anyone who showed up got in because there just weren't enough girls who played and even then we then had to steal players from elsewhere because there just <laughs> weren't enough girls around um so I went along to that and there was a club it was at a club called Wallingford so I played there for under 13 to I think under 16 and then moved to Berkshire um, and played for Reading for the last couple of years of junior rugby and I think from the age of about 13 I then started doing all of the pathway stuff so the like county regional stuff like that and then by probably 16 17 18 was doing the England under 18 pathway stuff as well and then at 18 I then had to find a senior club so was, that's when I went to Saris. So I was there for four years, um, played one year of the old premiership. And then I was, it was like, I think women's rugby, as we'll discuss, is at a really, really exciting point. But it was after my first year of um, Saris that they completely restructured the premiership. They got a title sponsor and it suddenly became a completely different game altogether. It was really, really completely flipped over. Started to be funded properly, started to be taken seriously and people started to really say this could go somewhere. Um, so we won the first couple of years of that, um, at the time it was the Tyrrells Premier 15s, what's now the Alliance Premier 15s. Um, and yeah, did, did England under 20s, so that was a lot of kind of training camps all over the country and then we'd go to France to play matches, play against the army and then France home and away. Um, and yeah, that's kind of rugby to this point. I also loved playing sevens. Um, and I remember that, you were playing sevens as well at the same time. Yeah. I I absolutely love sevens. Um, I think if I could have chosen one, it would have been sevens, but we were lucky in that at the time we could play both. Mm. So we'd play 15s during the 15 season over the winter, gets to May, April, May, and everyone's just bam, straight into summer um, sevens. So yeah, we travel a fair bit with that as well. Um, and absolutely loved it. The biggest problem I faced was concussion. So I think I had my first concussion funny story completely unrelated to rugby but when I was 10 I got hit in the face with a cricket ball and lights out a little crack in my cheekbone and that was not not fun at all um but then had nothing until I was about 15 or 16 then started getting concussions in rugby but was fine everyone got them they were just I think at the time it just seemed like that people were being more aware which is genuinely only a good thing um but mine started to get more and more frequent and then it got to the point where for the last couple of years uh so we started let's say 2018 2018 to 2020 i was seeing a team of neurologists up in birmingham you know, scanning me testing me trying to work out what was going on because i was just getting concussed so frequently i'd take six months out to rest my head and then first session back would be out again and they were kind of like something's going on here so for the first couple of concussions I was with them for, they were kind of being very, very careful, but saying that I think you're right, we can we can work through this, your scans are looking good, your tests are looking good. And then got to my last concussion was, I'd been out for months and had done all of my return to contact, all of my kind of fitting attack shields, fine, felt good, felt really kind of really genuinely ready to go, um, psychologically as much as physically. 
And then my last training session before my first game back ran head on into a Fijian crash heads. She was absolutely fine and I was lights out. Um, and at That's that point, gutting. yeah. So, and at the time I knew, like as soon as I, as soon as I came around, I knew. And one of my, um, <laughs> one of my symptoms, so concussion affects everyone differently. But one of my symptoms is quite funny to watch. I get really emotional, but very high and very low and really quickly <laughs> after I've been hit. So I'll like come round and I'll just be giggling with tears pouring down my face. And then I was like, right, <laughs> she's, she's got it again. <laughs> that sounds like me without a concussion. Yeah. <laughs> At least I've got an excuse. <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to mention this um, in the intro, but I forgot. And I don't mean to trivialise it because it's obviously a tough thing. But I think, I think you're the person who, like, out of everyone I know, has had the most concussions. I'll take that crown. Um, which is which is a big deal because like riders get concussed a lot and rugby players get concussed a lot. And I know quite a few of both and by far like <laughs> your number. Do you just want to tell everyone the record? Yeah, so I'm actually still in single digits. Um so I'm at nine. So far. I thought I'd save uh, the double digits for something special. <laughs> yeah. Let's so... hope you don't get any more. I mean nine nine is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And I think I was actually really lucky in the sense that I was very, very well looked after. Mm. Um, they were really beginning to take it seriously when I was getting my concussions. And for, so for not all of them, I wasn't knocked out for all of them. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, maybe even five, five years, if I'd been five years younger getting those concussions, I don't think they would have really taken anything seriously at all. And I was also really lucky in the sense that all of my scans and all of my tests by the time I was seeing the neurologists were all fine so that doesn't mean that obviously when I first got hit if I'd seen if they tried to assess me then I'd have been all over the place but by the time I got into Birmingham to get in the MRI scanner to get doing all of those tests I was good and I think that bodes very well um, and I hope that that's a kind of a positive sign and I think when they told me to stop the way they said it was not you know you're about to drop dead if you dare play rugby again it was very much they had my best interests at heart and they made the call so it was actually um quite cool the neurologist i saw the first time this guy called patrick it turned out i'd um he'd been our doctor in some england 20 scans and i had no idea when i went off to birmingham walked in the door he called my name walked in the door, i was like hang on a minute <laughs> and so i think I because know. he I know you and I think because he'd been in that sporting environment and he's he knew a bit more about the kind of the athlete mentality and he'd worked with a lot of rugby players so a lot of the premiership guys when they get knocked they go to that clinic um and so because he knew that kind of mentality I actually said to him in the first appointment I was like look I know that stopping rugby is on the cards that's essentially why I've come to see you but I despite knowing all the risks and benefits I won't be able to pull myself out I need you to tell me when it's when it's game over mm. because I like rugby was such a big part of my life, my identity. I just, I loved it. And until somebody tells me who I trust from a medical perspective, it's no longer safe for you to play. I'm not stopping. Um, so how did so, you find that, you know, how being essentially being told that you can't do what you do anymore and you can't do this work that you love anymore um, because from something that's completely, I guess, out of your control. Um, was that obviously it was a big change and I can imagine how tough it was but how how did you cope with it sort of psychologically yeah it was really difficult and it's actually 
nice to be able to speak about it with people who kind of get it because I adore my friends at uni but none of them are like athletes really like none of my kind of close friends here they can get that it's a big part of my life but they don't really get it if that makes sense yeah um and yeah it was really difficult so I found out um in person and then had to tell my my physio was always in on it the club physio at Saris was always in on it from the start and then I had to tell the coach and um on the phone and it was yeah it was really really difficult and I think at the time it was just like I just don't know what my life is going to look like from now on like there was just so much unknown uncertainty and then the biggest thing for me and I think you'll probably hear a lot of retired athletes say this is the identity thing um and I remember so I'd moved in with my current fat mates just a couple of months before I got told I had to stop but this was all obviously in 2020 so Covid was still very much a thing and I um found out in October and like shortly after finding out I was starting to meet a lot of my flatmates friends that they'd meet on, on nights out and stuff because obviously because I was doing so much rugby and med school I wasn't really going out much which was a decision that was I absolutely was fully in for and it was completely my decision and I do not regret it one bit but it meant that there are a lot of like social things at uni that I'd missed out on that most freshers would get and I was starting to meet all of these my fatmates friends and they would come around and be like oh you want to go to play rugby so nice to finally meet you and I'd be like oh actually I'm not like I'm no longer going to play mm. rugby and people know me yeah. as that and suddenly I had to find who I was without rugby and certainly a lot of the identity things that um made me a rugby player both rugby made me that and I went into rugby and loved rugby so much and did so much rugby because that was who I was you know they certainly overlapped and they were always me, but I didn't know them. All I knew was rugby and I had to kind of pull Rowan out of rugby and see who she was without it. So things like being super competitive, that's me. But I just knew Rowan was really competitive at rugby. Um, And things like that, I had to kind of work out who I was without the sport. Um, And obviously with COVID going on, it was difficult to work out what else I could do. and so initially, I literally was just like, oh, suddenly I've got free time. So I started doing all of those social things that I'd missed out on for a couple, the first couple of years of uni. Um, so I was probably just drinking too much, going out too much and having a lot of fun. But that wasn't helping me work out who I was and how I wanted to actually spend that free time that I now had. Um, and I've gradually, it's been a very gradual process, but I've now got so much more kind of balance in my life. Um, I do a lot of sport now, but so much less competitively and so much less um just with a lot less kind of stress and pressure um so I do the sport because I really enjoy it um rather than because I wanted to be the absolute best rugby player and I wanted to really go somewhere with it that sounds like a good place to be to be fair and like I know a lot of people who have left sport um especially people who have left sport um sort of out of their will uh or against their will and um still haven't found still haven't found that you know found that balance and found that sort of repurposing or refocus um in their lives that's that's really good that you're in a you're in that position um at the same time you you were doing medicine Um, yeah and i suppose you started 
med school whilst you were still playing rugby? Yes. Yeah. Um, so obviously you spent a lot of time balancing the two um, while you're still doing both. And yeah, how, how did you find that and, and what, what got you into it? So, yeah, so I start with brute intermedicine, it was slightly unconventional. Um, I went to a school that uh, churned out medics. I absolutely loved the school. Um, can barely say a bad word about it, but they did love to just churn out medics. Um, so it was very academic and anyone who's good at science, they're like, oh, you can go be a doctor. And they knew exactly how to get people into med school and they did very, very well at it. Um, and I remember, so I was only there for sixth form. It was an all boys school until sixth form where they take girls. And interviewing to get in, one of the interviews was about what A-level subjects you wanted to do. And the guy interviewing me um, said, why aren't you doing chemistry? And I, I know, made up some answer. I hate the subject, don't want to do anything with it. Don't be so silly. And he was like, oh, I think you're making a mistake because I think you're going to want to be a doctor. And I was like, you met me about seven minutes ago. How dare you? <laughs> like, you know nothing. You don't know me. <laughs> and lo and behold, I went back three years later and I was like, yeah, I think you're so right. Dr. Pearson, <laughs> we need to sit down. Can you help me apply to med school? <laughs> and he was like, I told you. And he remembered it. He remembered the interview better than I did. Um, and yeah, he was right. So I hadn't done chemistry A level. When I was at school, I had a deferred place to do natural sciences. Um, so I'd always loved sciences, but I didn't, I basically don't like people telling me what to do. And I knew that medicine was a big commitment. Like my parents aren't doctors or anything, but I had enough friends whose parents were, and I'd seen enough um, of the field to know that it's not a decision you take lightly. Um, and I knew that if I was going to be a doctor, which I had kind of vaguely considered up until that point, you know, it's kind of shoved down your throat with the um, schools I went to and everything. I had considered it, but I knew that if I was going to do it, it had to be on my terms. Um, and I, on my gap year, then worked in a hospital. And I was like, oh, shit, here we go. And I was like, no, that is actually what I want to do. So I then had to go rather sheepishly back to school and say, can you give us a hand? Um, so I did, went to a different place, essentially ended up self-teaching chemistry level. Um, I did technically go to college, but my teacher never showed up, which was great. Um, and then did the A-level in one year, did the UCAT, which is, it was UK CAT when I did it. Now the UCAT is the admissions test or one of the admissions tests. Got some work experience off the back of the people I've been working for in the hospital. And yeah, came to Kings. Um, so that was my slightly convoluted route into medicine. Mm. And then, yeah, you're right. So I did two years where I was doing both medicine and rugby. Um, and I loved it. Um, at the time, most of the med school stuff was pretty kind of lecture and tutorial based. And most of it was on campus, nine to five kind of vibe. So actually in that sense, it really wasn't too difficult to fit around the rugby. I'm a morning like person. So I'd get up gym in the morning. Sometimes I'd have time to gym at lunchtime because I was really lucky in that the campus was um there's a gym pretty much right next door one of the uni gyms um so sometimes gym at lunchtime and then I'd have training in the evenings um so I'd leave campus at five get home and kind of shoot up to North London train a few meetings then train for a few hours and then I'd get home 11 30 midnight kind of vibes and then up again to gym and I was I don't know if it's because I was young but I was absolutely fine with that <laughs> like sleep deprivation no problem at all um and I yeah I really really enjoyed it um, and I think actually you brought this up in the context of um, finding balance, having stopped rugby. And I think medicine's really, really kind of saved me in that sense. Um, mm. And I think 
I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this in a little bit more detail later, but that's where the fact that women's rugby isn't yet professional or is on the pathway is actually, it's actually really good for me because growing up, I knew I loved rugby, but my career was at that point never going to be rugby. And mm. I knew that I always wanted to do something academically on the side that was going to be my main focus. Um, because I remember, I remember when I was about 14, someone who was not involved in women's rugby at all was like, oh, do you want to go professional? Because I was doing like, I don't know, Southwest or whatever it was. And I was like, oh no, don't be silly. Like women's rugby is not professional now. We're years away from that. And we were a few years away from it, but look where we are now. Um, and actually the fact that I'd had that growing up with being professional, not being a possibility meant that I really had to get some other kind of career on the side. And that's what medicine's been for me. And it's been incredible. Yeah, so that's, it's been a really good focus for me to absolutely throw myself into um, coming back away from rugby. Um, and even the last couple of years, medicine just gets more intense. And mm. so I'll now, I'll now like, so the last placement I was on, I'd leave, leave at kind of like 6.30 to cycle to placement. And then I'd be on placement. Sometimes I wouldn't leave placement until like 11.30 midnight. And then I'd come back again. So fitting rugby around that would be very different. Um, yeah. But I was lucky in the sense that for my first couple of years, it was fine. It was nine to five uni and then everything rugby around that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, it's actually, it's interesting because you, I suppose you had medicine to sort of not fall back on obviously because that was your sort of career focus and like you don't you don't fall back <laughs> on medicine but um, <laughs> but it was something like you say like with the whole identity thing and, and losing who you are as a rugby player and um having medicine to still be there and that be such a big part of your life probably was was a big big help with that um and because you know the flip side of that is that people who I guess are in sports where they want to be professional or, or being professional is even an option it's on the on the table um quite often they don't have anything else you know they commit fully their entire lives to to the sport and um, as we know it's such a volatile thing to do and you, you can have a, like one too many injuries or have something that just ends your career and then you've got nothing um, but yeah talk to us about women's rugby like obviously you, yeah you, you said that it's it's in a really exciting place at the moment what was it like when you first started uh, um, compared to I suppose what it's like now and because I, I remember having a conversation with you before as well and you were saying that even at Sari's like uh which is a, a, obviously a big team like most most of the most of the girls had jobs um outside of it and, and you have to um and what is that how yeah I suppose what was the kind of support and structure around it and how is that how is that growing now and changing um and what's it sort of yeah. developing into? <clears throat> yeah, it is really exciting. And I know that's kind of thrown around a lot, but the speed of the growth of the game 
I've obviously only mainly seen it in England, um, but it is happening in other countries as well, is phenomenal and it's really, really cool. Um, but you're right, most people who play that kind of premiership rugby, women's rugby in England, do have jobs. Um, and it's a really, it's a difficult one because you've got some people who, like me, who kind of wanted a, like a pretty intense full on career um, away from rugby. And then you've got other people who have thrown absolutely everything into the sport because they want to go professional. So in terms of the way the um, professionalism works in women's rugby at the moment is that England girls, both 15s and 7s, are um, full-time professional and they don't need jobs on the other side, on the side. Some of them still have jobs like PTs or they do some kind of social media work or things like that. Some of them do, but they don't need to. And then the premiership um, pay is essentially on a club by club basis. Um, so they'll essentially, the two most common are, they'll do match fees. So for every match you play, you'll get 50 quid, 100 quid, whatever it is. Um, or they'll do, you get a certain amount for signing to the club for the season. Um, and then some players will also be on, on retainer contracts. So they'll have their match fees, but it will also be, there's a kind of a, a longer term commitment between club and player. Um, and the match fees, I think, are good in terms of it kind of covers your expenses. So I was, um, for the majority of the time I was at Saris, I was basically losing money for, for being there. Um, Kings was obviously fantastic in that I got financial support from the uni. Um, and you, Sean, you, I presume you're in kind of the same boat there because that's obviously where we, we yeah. met. But, yeah. um, but the majority of the time I was at Saris, I was paying to play. Um, and... So yes, yeah, so I had the career on the side. I was playing with other girls who all they all they did was rugby. And then there was a group in the middle who were playing a lot of rugby, throwing everything into it, but needed a career on the side, but it had to be something that fitted in around rugby. So they do some part-time PT work. Um, they would do some kind of part-time rugby skills coaching. And it was something that basically had to fit with whatever their rugby was going to do. So rugby was number one, but they just needed to pay the bills. Um, and that is to an extent still how it is. Um, but the as the game becomes increasingly professional, more and more people are switching from or having to switch from the people like me who've got careers and rugby is a big thing that is ultimately on the side through to the rugby's everything, any career around that has to fit with that all the way into the fully professional rugby is everything. Um, and I've actually got a good friend who I was actually at school with. She's a few years above me. Um, but I was at school with her and then we played at Saris together. Who has, she won the premiership last week and has now had to say, I'm not renewing my contract because she simply can't fit it around her career. Um, she's not making it to training. She's a consultant and she's not in medicine, in like strategy consultant. And she can't get to training. She's working US hours because she's on a US project at the moment. And if they want you to be at training from, you know, absolute minimum would be meetings at 6, 6.15 to leaving training around 10. If she's working US hours, she simply can't make it. She just can't get there. Um, and for the last kind of second half of this season, when she's been working those hours, her coach has said, yeah, you know what? You can only do what you can do. So she'll be up at four o'clock to gym in the morning and then she'll get home at 11.30, 12, whatever. She lives in London as well. Um, and she just said, I literally can't make it to training. Um, and so for the last few months they've had this you know the deal and she, he's just been like I get it come when you can but ultimately long term that's not going to work 
like it's kind of getting to the point where you can't have a career and rugby I've got another very very close friend who plays for Bristol Bears and she same year of med school as me at Bristol and she's basically saying she doesn't want to do or she's torn but at the moment she's swaying away from doing those foundation years when you graduate medical school after your first foundation you're, you're fully registered and until then you can't kind of go off and do any specialty training or anything like that and she's basically saying I don't at the moment think I want to do foundation years because I want to give rugby a proper go and she wants to go kind of full-time professional she's dying up England and she's just saying look I, I can't do that as a doctor in foundation training um because this they simply you do not have enough hours in the day um there are doctors who play rugby I absolutely take my hat off to them but I'm not sure that there are any who are in full-time specialty training I think um I'm sure some will come out of the woodwork and and hold their hands up and yeah absolutely honestly take my hat off to you because it is phenomenal but the majority of doctors who play rugby are locums so they'll work on a part-time basis they'll just pick up shifts as and when they can to fit it around their sport um but yeah so it's in a really kind of it's in a proper transition time where it's moving over towards professionalism and that's got to be a good thing for the sport um yeah but it's a pretty rocky middle ground do you, do you think over the time of you playing rugby and Saris and having kind of the different contracts where you're either full in, you're kind of part-time, well, not part-time playing rugby, but full-time studying, full-time trying to work and full-time trying to play rugby. Was there any kind of conflict in that team environment? Because obviously when you're trying to do that for yourself, if you're like a weightlifter, it's just you and your coach. It doesn't really matter if you have a full-time job and you're trying to lift weights for GB or whatever but in a team environment where you've got people who are being played to work versus you having to pay for the privilege mm. like I understand there's you you're in a privileged position to be able to play rugby but there's a big difference between you paying for the privilege versus getting paid for the privilege in a team environment yes yeah absolutely so there were conflicts I think in terms of the the politics of it in terms of oh she's getting more paid more than me like that wasn't really a thing I don't know mm. if it almost should have been more because it was very under wraps who was getting what and it wasn't open like nothing was put out in the open at all which I think actually probably should be like I think mm. you you need to be vulnerable with your teammates when you're literally putting your bodies on the line I think you need to be open and vulnerable you need to understand each other um and I think knowing what people are sacrificing to be there would have really helped with that but that wasn't really so much the problem. The problem came when you had the professional girls expecting high standards, absolutely expect high standards, but absolutely berating somebody when they drop a ball and or do something or whatever, haven't, you know, haven't had a chance to do their analysis because they worked 14 hours the day before. The professional girls will say that's not good enough. And for them, you're right. If they hadn't done that, I wouldn't be good enough because you are literally paid to just do rugby. But actually, if you've been working 14 hours in A&E, or if you've been, like one of the girls, Sonic, Sonia Green, she's played over 300 times for Saracens, absolute hero. And she is, I think, the deputy head of Saracens High School. She works phenomenal hours. She sleeps less than anyone I know. Um, but if, if she were told off for something, for having not done something that she simply couldn't have done, that's not fair. That's not right. And we had one big... I remember this quite vividly. We had a kind of a big team culture meeting at one point and something had happened in, it was about the bigger picture, but there was one incident that was brought up where one of the 
professional girls um, had been swearing on the pitch to another girl for not playing well enough. And she was absolutely hurling abuse at her, which I just don't think is okay. And she was effing and blinding saying, you know, you don't deserve this shirt, et cetera, et cetera. Like go home, get off the pitch, can't they put someone else on? Um, and I mean, firstly, that's not the way to pick up your teammate who's not having a good game. Um, but secondly, you can't speak to anybody like that. And this was brought up in the culture meeting and the England girls said, but look, this is my job. This is, I've got to put food on the table. She's just, she just has a, a kid. And she was like, look, if I don't, if I look like I'm playing shit because somebody's chucking shit balls to my feet and I'm dropping them, I'm going to get dropped. I'm going to lose my job and I'm not going to be able to feed my kid. And I just said, look, if I treated a colleague the way that you treated that player, I'd be fired. Like, I get that this is a big deal to you. And I get that they, you know, you face the repercussions of someone throwing a shit pass to you. But that's not how you treat a colleague. If I treated a colleague like that, I would literally be told to walk out the door. And I think that's where the misunderstanding comes in. Is that to some girls, this is literally putting food on the table and paying a, putting a roof over their heads. And to other girls, this is just trying desperately to hold their heads above water, get fitting everything in in their lives. And that really, really needs to... Um, I think you need there needs to be a lot more understanding and a lot more kind of open uh, talks with one another to really understand where everyone's coming from so that people understand what rugby means to them and understand where rugby fits in their lives and what they can and can't do. Yeah. Yeah, that um, is that is tough though cuz Yeah. Yeah, like um to be in an environment where obviously it's a sport that requires extremely high standards and it's there's a lot of stuff going on and you need to <clears throat> you need to do a lot of things right, you know. Um yeah. And obviously, even if even if it was your job and you were full time, you were a full time rugby player, and everything you did was rugby, you, like it's still you still wouldn't get it hundred percent right. Yeah. Um. So, you know, to then put in, oh, actually, you can't be a professional rugby player. Like you have to have work on the side. You know, you're going into training after however many hours of work um that you've done prior that day and, and you know you've you've missed you've missed your bits because you've had other commitments um that you have to be a part of um just to just to stay afloat and to to put food on the table like to still be expected to play to the same and train to the same amount uh, same standards um like in the same environment as people who i suppose like it is their life um that like that can be quite a conflicting thing and like because i found like so i'm uh extremely lucky at the moment with um the amount of i guess support and funding that we get from from hong kong and from the government and stuff like that that we're able to make this our our job and our focus but you know i, I know at the same time i know a lot of people who who don't have that and don't have those opportunities and have to have you know in in quote marks real jobs <laughs> um, <laughs> aside from the sport and like it's tough enough to try to make it um when this is everything you're doing but then on top of that to have you know a nine to five and then you're trying to fit around that and then you're going to shows on the weekend um while you're getting work calls like it's it's a tough 
it's a tough gig. Um, so yeah, and you you know that better than anyone. Like you've you've been there. You've done the what the master's degree and eventing all together. You you know the, the yeah. I think um, I think my degrees were well. Both of my degrees combined were probably a lot less demanding than going to medical school. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be so sure. Work hard, play hard is real. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting what you bring up about that sort of, that sort of structure around women's rugby. And it's just, I'm just kind of thinking about how it compares with the men's game. And obviously a team like Sari's with a, like a very successful uh men's team um well i think you're you're back now aren't you but um (laughs) (laughs) we'll find out this weekend we've got the semis this weekend yeah yeah um we'll see but obviously many years of being an extremely successful team at least um (laughs) you know is there there is obviously a big difference right between um how the men's team is structured and the kind of support and resources they get uh versus the women's you know how how obvious is that and how big of a gap is there it's closing um and i think especially for teams like saracens and quins and worcester and bristol who are very well aligned with their men's male kind of counterparts within those clubs um the gap is definitely shrinking um especially for the full-time England girls. So the way that the England girls work is they are contracted by England. Obviously their clubs are contracted on whatever the club chooses. Um, but ultimately their week in, week out training is with their club. So the men and women will now train at the same. So when I first went to Saris, we would just train Tuesday, Thursday nights on the pitch, which is fantastic. So we played at the what's now the Stonex Stadium, 4G pitch, fantastic. Um, absolutely unbelievable pitch. One of, probably my favourite pitch to play on, actually. Um, but that was it. And then when they first went full-time professional, um, they then started to play, train during the day and they would train with their clubs. And that then moved to uh, Old Albanians, which is where the men train throughout the week. So you've got the full gym there, all the training pitches, everything, good, really, really good facilities there. Um, and increasingly, you're now getting those players who are not centrally contracted by England, but are devoting more and more of their lives to rugby who are perhaps doing you know as I said before the part-time stuff on the side that fits around rugby they are now joining in those sessions as well so they're pretty much being full-time rugby players they're training throughout the day at OAs at the club with the England girls training in the evening with the whole squad and then any work they can do around that is you know that's great um so in terms of the resources it's definitely narrowing obviously the men just get so much more funding you know that's fact and that's realistically probably won't change for quite some time because if you know there's not enough money coming into women's rugby again it's growing massively and there's huge opportunities for companies um, to get involved now but it is a slow process and until we can fill stadiums we're not going to be getting the the same funding um uh i mean i think it should fill stadiums like i'm biased i do because honestly i i am like I'll be honest, I've not, you know, until uh, I guess a couple of years ago, I've not really, I've not really seen women's rugby. Um, and like even back, like when I was playing a bit, and we like we didn't really have much to do with the women's team, and like it, it was it was just such a big divide. 
Um, and then it wasn't until I don't even remember what it. Um, I probably saw something on on Instagram, like uh, a, like clips of like highlights. I was like, this is sick. Like they're yeah. better than us. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, honestly, the the standard women's rugby is growing exponentially, and the standard that comes with that is like all the money that's being pumped in is not wasted by any stretch of imagination. I actually remember when I was still at school, so I'd have been probably 17 or 18, I went with some school friends to watch the England, I think it was England-Wales men in the Six Nations and the women, and it was at Twickenham, and the women were playing at the stoop afterwards. And I was the only, so the boys I went with played rugby, and then the girl I went with didn't play rugby at the time. She actually does now, um, but she didn't at the time. And we all went, and I was like, oh, come on, guys, let's just come and watch, go and watch the women. And it would be wrong to say I was embarrassed, but actually having just watched international men's rugby to shuffle on down to the stoop, the standard, the drop in standard was huge. It was enormous. But actually, so that would have been 2015, I'd have said, something like that, 2015, 2016. And the way that the standard of rugby has skyrocketed since then, it is completely unrecognisable. These girls are proper athletes. They know rugby inside out and live and breathe rugby and that's what professionalism does you know yeah it's great on paper and it's great for the news articles to say we're pumping money into it but unless you see that driving standards what's the point like the investors are going to pull out but i can it, like honestly hand on heart that it is so worth it so yeah any investors suppose... out there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i suppose it, it can be a bit of a, a vicious cycle can't it because like you say, that's what professionalism does. And that's, you know, you need that professional environment as well as the professional support in order to play to that standard. Um, so in many ways, like it's probably more impressive, the fact that um, in, in an environment and a structure where it's not fully professional, like the standards have still grown so much. Yeah. Absolutely. There's also another really interesting um, concept and also difficult thing for teams to work out, which is that the girls who are professional are obviously, they are the ones who are driving the standards and growing at that like serious rate. But then the girls who don't, aren't able to make it to those daytime sessions, who aren't able to act like a full-time professional, they're not going to grow at the same rate. So actually one thing we did see within the squad is that you almost started to get a slight divide in the standard. Mm in that the girls who were full-time professional, you could really tell. And yes, they were the best players. That's why they were chosen to go professional. But also the, the gap was kind of only getting bigger. Yeah. Um, and that's really, really difficult to manage within a whole squad because you can't make a whole squad professional when you simply don't have the funding. Hmm. And, you know, putting on, invite, opening those sessions up to the whole squad saying, I know you're not contracted by England, but come along to training if you're around, if you can get in time off work or whatever. Yeah, that helped, but that doesn't get you a full squad into training. That doesn't mean that all of your players can now act like full-time professional players. They can't. Like if they're a teacher, they can't just, you know, leave the kids mid-A level, go, sorry, hang on a minute, I'm gonna go chuck an egg shake all around. <laughs> That's not a thing. Um, so yeah, it is like there are the most incredible rewards that you get from going professionalism, but there it's not without its its problems. Um but having said that, it was like coming back to the whole medicine rugby thing and it's I think actually when with the men's game where it's completely professional kids will 
lived that dream for years and they will not go to uni because they have got an academy contract and they'll be paying not minimum wage but you know they won't be on the big bucks by any by any stretch of the imagination when they're 18 first signing their first contract but they will give up everything to go into rugby because it's professional and you I'm sure you guys see it as well in, in your sport like people will leave everything to one side to go full-time pro and suddenly they get that injury or their contract's not renewed and I think it's a hundred in the men's game I think it's this season there's a hundred premiership players who are just without a contract next year where are they going what are they doing yeah yeah you know they some they've still got to put food on the table Mm. and with the salary cap in the UK you know I mean realistically the guys who are getting the top bucks aren't the ones who are getting dropped and being coming out of con like put out of contract but the average salary here isn't big enough it's not like if you had a premiership footballer who's had a contract for a year they got enough to kind of fall back on it's not like that in, yeah. in rugby the money's well, not rug- there you've got the salary big cap. bucks isn't football big bucks no yeah and um, rugby small bucks isn't football small bucks you know and that's a really that's an interesting point actually because mm. i um yeah I, I actually the other day i had a conversation with um some of the sort of uh, the people in Hong Kong in the more kind of managerial positions about our program and our sort of youth development program. Um, and the conversation was, I don't know how much I can actually share, but the conversation was sort of directed at, you know, the pathway from, from junior riders moving up to moving up to seniors. And the reality of it is that most of the kids end up not riding anymore because they go to uni or um because they yeah they they move abroad and go to uni or get jobs um which is like completely understandable like that's real life and the point that i was trying to make was that the it shouldn't be we shouldn't be discouraging that and we shouldn't because yeah uh, you know in, in any sport i think it's a massive commitment both time and effort wise um to to be good at a at a at a decent level um and you do need to put a lot into it but you know we shouldn't be pulling people away from actually having like giving themselves options um Mm. and giving themselves things outside of the sport and telling them like look if you want to do this you have to put a hundred percent into into it like and have nothing else because that's yeah. not that's not healthy and that's not a good situation for them either like that's not exactly fair on them so yeah like it's it's a tough one because you know we want to make it professional and we want to make it so that people can do that you know people can choose to do this for their whole life and um whereas you know for me it's always been it you know i made quite a conscious decision or, or my parents did to be honest when i was 15 <laughs> um that i needed to go to uni and needed to have other options and have if nothing else have something to fall back on you know obviously mm. ended up actually really enjoying what i was studying but um just having those options and then choosing and deciding like what you want to do is a big thing like um so yeah like do you think well do you think women's rugby will ever be in that place where the men's are now where 
you know, girls growing up, actually, you know, being a professional rugby player is an option. And, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, 100%. So girls are now growing up going, I can, rugby can be my job. And I think that is absolutely phenomenal. Like, I wish I'd had that growing up. I think I, my parents, like like yours, would easily have grounded me, grounded me enough to say, go to uni on the side. And I always would have done like uni. I, I really enjoy academia. I don't, it's funny when I don't enjoy academia in, in the sense of like what you think of as a job in academia, but I love learning. Um, and so I'd have always wanted to go to uni. I'd have always wanted to forge some kind of career on the side, but it would have been so cool to grow up. And instead of when our family friend asked, would you go professional? Instead of having to laugh and go, don't be ridiculous. I would have gone like, yeah, could be. Um, that is pretty cool. Like that's really, really cool. And you see the yeah. little girls, you see girls like there's quite a few players in the premiership now and have their little mascots like uh, Lottie Clapp, our co-captain at Saris. She's got a little girl who comes to all her games and has 11 Clapp on her back. And she just like absolutely adores her. There's another girl, Ellie Boatman, who's at Wasps. She's got a little mascot called Livy who comes to every single game, follows off and down the country. We had, I think in my first year at Saris, we'd go up to like, folk, like, Kind of, where was it Darlington so like up towards that like, Newcastle way and we had a couple of girls from London who would follow us to come and play up there and like that's pretty cool to us because we're like we're not like at this point we were no big deal whatsoever but mm. and it's pretty cool to have those kids growing up seeing yeah I could do that um I think the difficulties obviously come when as you said people throw everything into it they don't go to uni they don't forward any kind of career on the side I think men's rugby starting to see that now so the RPA the Rugby Players Association they are doing a lot of work to support retired athletes um, and I think you mentioned earlier something about athletes who retire not on their terms and I can't remember what the statistic is but they are the vast majority of athletes very very few athletes in, in this grand scheme of things get to at least in rugby get to go you know what I think it's about my time yeah there's almost always either a major underlying injury where their body can't carry on going or they get put out of contract or they simply can't play the rugby they want to do anymore so they're like yeah they just can't hmm. renew it or there's a, a major career ending injury there's almost always something else going on and the RPA are doing a lot of work to support athletes post-retirement and a lot of clubs are now supporting their players to do stuff on the side whilst they're still playing as well. So um, probably a slightly hot water here in terms of obviously the salary cap um, breach at salaries, but, and I am not- Supporting as in owning property. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and investing in businesses, etc. Um, I'm not gonna go into the galleys of it. I simply don't know enough. And even if I did, I'd probably get it wrong. Um, but, one of the things that Saracens do do is support their players with businesses on the side. So, you know, you've got Brad Barrett, who's obviously now retired from Saris. He's doing Tiki Tiki uh, Tonga Coffee. Um, you've got George Cruz has just retired to full, focus full-time on his CBD oil company. Like, And the club really supported them through all of those things um, because they are now recognising that there's life beyond rugby. Hmm. At least there needs to be life beyond rugby. Um, so it's fantastic that they are now starting to recognize that in a men's game and it's going to be a service study process but it is happening they're aware of it and as they get more invested in it I'm sure that will only go from strength to strength I think the key thing for the women's game is that we pick up on that now so we don't follow what the men have done in terms of fantastic we're going professional rugby is everything 
give up your life heart and soul and put it all into rugby then you get you know your concussion like nasty knee injuries spiral leg fractures etc all of that and suddenly you're like oh shit now what um I think if we do that we, that would just be so stupid like we've seen it happen in the men's game mm. we've seen the way it breaks players we just have got to be a bit smarter about it and make sure that we don't do the same thing um we've got to make sure that we're supporting players throughout to keep something going on the side like even the the girls who are now professional almost all of them will have degrees because they came through at a time where you had to have a degree that you had to or at least you had to do something beyond school you had to go and get a job I just hope that we don't fall into the trap of picking up an elite 16 year old going yeah come play for England now give up everything don't go to uni don't you don't need that I'll give you like selling them the dream I really hope we don't get into a position like that because we've seen it doesn't work and I just think we'd be so naive and just dumb to to do anything different differently yeah yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, no, I absolutely resonate with that as well. The fact that most, like, an overwhelming majority of athletes don't don't retire on their terms, right? And like in mm. in my sport, like I can count probably on one hand the riders I know who have retired on their terms, and it's like the fairy tale retirement. Yeah. Like, mm. I we all want that Mike Todd retirement. Um, yeah, uh, you know it, that is likely not going to be the case whether it's through an injury or we lose the horses and things like that so it's uh, I, I don't know what it's like in rugby like whether there's a culture because so for us it's, it's changing a lot now as well but I remember there was a period of time where it was almost it felt kind of like frowned upon to do to do anything outside of of the sport and of the job like really? because it looks like you're not you're not fully, fully committed, committed. Mm. um or you you know you're not dedicating everything and putting everything into it and that's why you're not riding as well or stuff like that you know and yeah. it's like that's it's not how it works um no it's not how it works I don't you know, have I think, professional it's a good question and i think the it's really difficult to answer because rugby's evolving women's rugby's evolving at such an extreme rate i don't know what i what my path would have looked like and I think it's like it's all very well saying this but I don't know what my mindset would be like if I was still playing rugby if I were getting to live almost a kind of full-time athlete lifestyle if I were able to fit it around placement I don't know I may get sucked into that and be like I just love it so much this is what I could have dreamed of as a kid but was never able to because it wasn't a thing and now it is a dream I can dream I don't know but I think with without that insight I would say probably not full-time professional because I at least I wouldn't do for example I wouldn't do my friends do or considering doing in terms of not doing the foundation is not becoming fully registered because I think it's just an, an opportunity missed I think I potentially could have would have considered going pro after um, my foundation years but this is all so hypothetical and when I stopped like when I stopped playing you just you I couldn't see where women's rugby's going I still don't know like mm. I still don't know where women's rugby's going it's really exciting a little bit scary but really exciting that we still don't know where where it's going and it's very difficult to make that call I'd always like yeah growing up I'd said no I won't go professional because the game's not professional and I want to have a career on the side like I want my career to be my big thing um 
and then obviously there's the other thing it's like I probably wasn't good enough like I hadn't played there's so much rugby I hadn't played largely due to concussion that like if that had carried on I probably wouldn't have been good enough given that the pool of players who are professional in this country is so small realistically I probably wasn't going to be one of them um and that's the other thing is like where's women's rugby going if Saracens then goes full-time professional then yeah sure sure as hell maybe but we don't know like this is what I mean like it's exciting and it's scary that we don't know what's going to happen within the next few years yeah um but yeah, yeah. a lot of uncertainty and yeah. yeah I mean it sounds like it's going in a really good direction yeah um, 100% it's really exciting and the the girls are really driving it like mm. the people like Poppy Cleo, Simi Pam they're really uh, Shauna Brown Abby Brown the England Sevens captain or co-captain they have got vision for the, where the sport can go and they are really really leading it and driving it and they, they, it kind of feels like they're unstoppable. It feels like when they all get together, they're kind of an unstoppable force. And that's so exciting. I mean, Abby Brown, by no means single-handedly, but I don't know if you heard about what happened in the run-up to the Olympics with the sevens, boys and girls. Did you hear about this? No. So it was obviously around the time of COVID, everything was kicking off. And in 2020, when COVID happened, obviously that was the year of the Olympics. Was it end of 2019 or? I think it was 2020. Yeah, must have 2020, been. 2020, yeah. Um, the, they all had their contracts scrapped. So sevens is now an Olympic sport. Mm. The men and women from England, who were the main, so obviously they compete as GB, but England, I think there was three non-English players in the squad, three or four, something like that. So England's the biggest part of that. They all had their contracts completely scrapped. Men, women, coaches, physios, oh, wow. everything gone. The whole programme gone. Months That's out from insane. the Olympic Games. And which is just, I don't know how you justify that. They said it was because of COVID, you know, all of the cuts that are coming in, they can't afford it, there's no training, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know, I don't, I think that is absolutely crazy. Um, and the players and the staff and the coaches, I'm not sure exactly which personnel it was, but they all basically got together and said, we're not having this, we're pulling together and we're going to make a team. And they literally went and they, brought everyone together. They went to the National Lottery, they got funding, they worked out the pitches they could use and they created their own GB team and they put on their training camps and they ran their training camps. That's and incredible. They came, forth, and they came forth in the Olympics. Yeah, no, I saw that. That's amazing. Which I didn't realise, like I didn't know about like the backstory to that and yeah. the context of it, but no, that's incredible. It is absolutely phenomenal. And so that's what happens when people get together to make change. That's what happens. Hmm. Well, like really, watch, really impressive. watch this space. Exactly. Um, but the fact that they could do that months out from Tokyo as well is insane. Yeah. That I mean, it's good that they did that, but they were forced into a corner. Really, they couldn't really do anything else other than essentially protest it. Yeah, but, but even that's... protesting wasn't going to happen. So they didn't. I, I, I mean, I don't know the specifics, but I mean, the majority of the funding. If, I don't know if they got any, but yeah. it wasn't from the RFU. It was from the National Lottery. They had to go and seek out their own funding and say, look, we're That's a group crazy. of professional athletes who are months out from the Olympic Games. Please give us something. We've been left with absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and they went and came forth at the Olympic Games. And I, I reckon a big part of that coming forth, like they obviously wanted more, but realistically, I don't think England have been performing that well on the series. I think to, I can't remember where they were, but they weren't performing well enough to come forth on the World Series. 
And so actually going into the Olympics and coming forth, I think a lot of that jump up was probably just heart. You know, they'd given up so much and put so much into that team that there was no way they were no way they were coming away with not. Yeah, I mean, coming forth off the back of all of that as well is is a pretty incredible achievement. Um, Going back to to medicine and Mm. med school, like, so you obviously you're not playing rugby now, but, you know, at the time when you were balancing the two, you know, playing playing for Sarah's and also doing medical school. um, What was that like in terms of because we talked a little bit about identity and talked a bit about you know the fact that it's a tough gig when you have to actually when you when you have to do both and you're going from one to another um like what were the main sort of challenges that you found there and did you find that having to go to uni um and then go to training in the evening for example like those things was it more of a like, did, did that actually help in any way? Or, or was it just just a bit of a shit show? No, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed having both because they require very different parts of your brain, as you know. Um, and I'd be kind of hyper-focused on one and then would completely kind of switch off that part and be completely hyper-focused on another thing. Um, and I did enjoy it. I was, I don't know how sustainable it was. Um, I wasn't sleeping very much and I was on the go 24 seven, like my mind never really switched off. Like, yeah, I could, you know, switch off the medicine and switch off the rugby, but I was always having to perform more like focus and be really kind of diligent the whole time. And I don't know, I don't know if that was sustainable. It might've been, um, but I, I can't say for sure, but it was like, yeah, average day was kind of up in the morning to gym. If I wouldn't have had time at lunchtime, um, lectures most of the day, off into training I'd usually I'd get my iPad out on the tube to training because I'd get the tube up to Northwest London um tube on on the way to training doing my notes making my doing my revision stuff um and then I'd train and then kind of protein shake and revision all the way home and then shower into bed and that was kind of like all day every day um the biggest thing um I missed out on as I alluded to earlier was the uni social life so I like I had I had had and have mates like I was actually like the two girls I live with I met in Freshers Week that's kind of unheard of to, <laughs> to maintain your fresh friends but um yeah I was really lucky and I've got a very very good core group of friends at uni um likewise at rugby I've got a really good like even since stopping playing there's some girls I still see all the time over the summer some of them basically almost lived at my flat in London um and yeah, I've been very kind of lucky in, in that sense. Um, but it was the, I didn't live a normal uni life. Um, I wasn't going out all the time. I said that's when I retired. Um, but, <laughs> You've made up for it. So. Oh, I've made up for last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I didn't have that normal, um, yeah, the normal uni experience, like the, the sports nights, which is obviously a big thing. I didn't yeah. go to my first one until I think it was about November 2021. Really? Yeah. You've missed out had, on that many Wednesday nights. I missed on that out on that many guys bars. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe maybe September. Oh, it's 2021. I've heard you're probably I'd, not missing much though. <laughs> no, I don't not, think I am. I've, I've only been true. twice since. <laughs> no, no, no. 
I think everyone's just too young there now. Like everyone's yeah. like eighteen. Oh no, the other, so I'll admit the. <laughs> I was um, <laughs> I was seeing one of my friends in London, like from one of my old flatmates, actually, uh, a couple of months ago, and we went out for a few drinks. Like I went into London, and we went out for a few drinks. We were just catching up, and I think it wasn't even a sports. It was like a Thursday night. Um, That's a big night in London. <laughs> yeah, well, any night is. But um, we we were just like um why. Like, like, let's go to, let's visit DC. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we walk along and we, we get to DC and Joe still remembered us, which like, oh, was the highlight of the night. <laughs> and, but anyway, so we go in and there was no one in there other than other people who have already graduated and they just wanted to visit DC. <laughs> You're joking. When was this? This was, um, uh, I, I don't know, like a, I reckon sort of March, April time. That's so funny. Um, and yeah, DC's a dying breed now. I know. I don't know what happened to it. And it was just um, just us and other people who have graduated. <laughs> and like we all recognized each other as well from previous DC oh, that's nights. That's so funny. And we'd be like, oh, haven't you graduated? And they'd be like, yeah, haven't, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> Same reason you're here. Yeah, <laughs> literally. No, DC's actually changed a fair bit. Um, like the the cohort that goes, I used to be able to walk in. I could have, because the DC's not far from my flat, I could walk in completely sober and alone and have an unbelievable night because you yeah. just know everyone there. Yeah. It's not like that anymore. Is it not? It's so sad. After, on the big nights, like post it, when everybody's had an exam, for example. So last night I was actually playing um, tag rugby. Uh, so I didn't, uh, and then we went to the pub down there. But um last week when we had the big exam on Wednesday that was great so I went to tag and then went to um DC afterwards and that was great because everyone had just finished the exam so it was the place to be the old saying it ain't over till it's over um and so <laughs> that like classic. that was great the classic but uh the majority of the time like I just don't recognize other people anymore hmm. that's sad for context yeah. for the listeners that didn't go to Kings. Dover oh, Castle yeah. is basically like a. Imagine you're you're uh, you're at uni and you have a. I'm not going to say any bad words, but like a, a local pub that is frequented by a lot of students in that area, specifically King students. It's basically like that, and yet they still keep going back. So it must be pretty good. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> Uh, we love to hate it and we hate to love it but we yeah. do just talk love about it. sleep deprivation and i just remember <laughs> so many wednesday nights going out and then and then i'd get on the train at six in the morning on a thursday to go up to like up towards loughborough and train and it was just <laughs> i don't know like, how you do it <laughs> just no. think about it. it makes me tired now no i You're can't do tired yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can't do a night out following my training, which is why I didn't go out when I played rugby. I just my body can't do it. So, what's the plan now then? Um, foundation one, foundation two, and then like, what does kind of the future look like for you? And as well as like, obviously, you mentioned you're playing tag rugby and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. So, um, I think when I stopped a lot of people like oh so what's what are you gonna do now like what, mm. what else are you gonna do and I was like I think the I 
played every sport I could growing up and there was a reason I chose rugby like there was a reason that was the one I loved the most and wanted to take seriously and play more of and I don't think it's as simple as okay well now you, you can't play one elite sport so you'll have to play a different elite sport it wasn't really like that for me it was like I I'm not going to put in all of those hours for the sake of it just because I can say I play a sport or just because I can train that hard or whatever it I did it because I love rugby and so stopping that I sure I love sport and I'm always going to carry on playing sport but I was never going to put the same emotional financial time etc into a sport if I didn't like it as much as rugby and so I now yeah so I really enjoy cycling um so should be cycling London to Paris this summer we only get two weeks holiday so I actually yeah finished fourth year like Hang yesterday on, you're cycling to Paris with my little brother oh wow yeah um how far is yeah that? which should be really fun <laughs> how long does that I'm, take so it depends um I'm doing it with my little brother so we're going to take it nice and chill so we'll probably do it in four days and then Crazy. one day in Paris to, to chill out um but yes yeah, so I've got a tournament in Ireland for tag rugby on the first weekend of my summer holiday. Yeah, so I finished fourth year yesterday, start fifth year on Monday, but then we mm. got two weeks in August of holiday. Um, and then in those two weeks of holiday, I've got a tag tournament in Ireland for the first weekend. Then I'm going to come home, have one day of rest, rest my legs, then cycle to Paris, then hope and go to the Alps, do a little bit of kind of hiking around, probably won't take the bike there. Um, and then have another tag tournament and then the final weekend have uh, another tag tournament in Leeds. I think it's that one's in Leeds. Um, and then I'm back into placement again. So yeah, so basically just I'm now doing sport for the enjoyment. If I can't mm -hmm. make it, I can't make it. You know, it's not the end of the world. And if I've got something else on one evening that I can't play, I can't play. So be it. And that's quite a kind of freeing place to be in. Um, and also just not having that, you know, if I am genuinely exhausted having finished placement at midnight, I don't have to wake yeah. up at five or six to gym. And that's actually really <clears> quite freeing <throat> now. Um, and then in terms of the medicine side of things, I, yeah, so one more year to go, foundation years here. And then I would love to go to Australia for at least a year. Um, I think I've got a lot of friends who've been out there. I actually don't have many medic friends out there. I've got kind of friends of friends who are medics out there. Um, but I've got a lot of people who have either gone over there to play rugby. So a lot of girls have done the Aeon 7 series. Um, so they'll go over in kind of like August, September time to play their 7 series and then come back. And then a few of the Aussie girls have come over and done a 7 season with us. So I've got a few kind of contacts in the rugby world um, over there. And firstly, lifestyle. Everyone who who goes over there comes back into that row and it's a bit of you, off you go, just leave, just, leave, just go. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then also from the medicine perspective, the just the pay, the lifestyle, the hours are just a lot more sociable. Mm. Um, and our degree is transferable over there. Um, so I think that would be the plan, at least initially, uh, foundation years and then a year in Australia. The majority of people, are, not the majority, but a lot of people are now doing that. There was some mm. crazy statistic I read when I was applying to med school, so it's probably quite outdated now. But it was something like, after your foundation years, so you do med school F one, F two, where you rotate through lots of different specialties. And I think for that third year, only fifty two percent of 
doctors would then stay in the NHS for the following year. 52. So, yeah, and that doesn't mean that everyone's kind of like sacking off medicine and going, oh, no, it's not for me. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going, oh, I'm never working to the NHS again. So there are obviously lots of different reasons that people would would leave. So some people go and do a master's, you know, mm. some people will go abroad, some people will work abroad, some people will travel, some people will go into research. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why people would, and a lot of people then end up coming back to the mm. NHS. So it's not, um, you know, it's not like 52% of doctors that we that graduate in the UK don't end up being doctors, yeah. but... It's crazy that a lot of people go after foundation years like I just need to breathe, like I need to do something different for a little while, and then after that, hopefully into specialty training. Um, I've never really known what specialty I want to do. I every time every time I go to a place, I'm like, yeah, that that's what I want to do. So I finish pediatric and be like, I'm going to be a pediatrician. Um, the only thing I can guarantee. If you ever hear me talking of becoming a GP or a psychiatrist, just knock me out again. That'll be my tech concussion, honestly. I just, <laughs> it's just not for me. I just, can't, I, just, I just done it again, honestly. I just can't do it. I love acute medicine. I love hospital medicine. Um, at the moment, I really enjoy anaesthetics. I mean, I have just done my anaesthetics block, so that's the classic. Um, <laughs> obviously, I wouldn't do that right now. <laughs> But I did know I did ICU anaesthetics and A&E was my last block altogether. And um, I love A&E, absolutely love it. But the lifestyle is just, it's just a no. Mm. Um, whereas anaesthetics is a great lifestyle and it also opens up a lot of doors to other opportunities um, in medicine, but away from the hospital. So things like expedition medicine, remote medicine, uh, pre-hospital medicine, kind of helicopter trauma medicine, all of that. Mm. Anaesthetics is a fantastic training programme you to go off and do those other kind of things and I would love to do something like expedition medicine um on on the side it's not a training it's not a, a specialty training program in its in itself um but some people do do it full-time um mm. they just basically don't do a hospital job and they literally just go from expedition to expedition I think I'm not enough quite enough of a, of a nomad to want to do that but I would love to do the odd that expedition amazing, once a month. yeah, yeah. It it's so cool yeah. so cool um, so yeah, the, the plan is one year in Australia. Um, don't know how my family feels about me never coming back, but, um, <laughs> you broken the knees? We were, yeah, they, they know I've wanted to go to Australia for years. Um, and they know that I want to go at some point. Um, even I don't know if I want to come back. Like mm. I, I think I am very, like, I adore my family and even now I still need to go home. I grew up in the countryside and I adore London, absolutely love it. But I do need the old country weekend in me. I need to go back, see the dogs, see the chickens, see the family um, <laughs> for, for, the, for the odd weekend. And I don't know and if I can leave all of that mm. behind completely um, by going to Australia. I don't know. I, yeah. I think I'll only know once I get out there. 100%. But now is your time to live the life that you get to decide to do so you might as well go and do it because it's not you're not you're going to find that the longer that you leave it the harder that decision becomes yeah so. absolutely and I think yeah and it's it's a very very natural time as I said mm. but it's when the, it's the time when people leave the NHS for a little while so mm. absolutely that's when I want to um I, that's the year I'd go and it's really just a case of whether I come back or not yeah yeah <laughs> but I just won't know until I get out there um and yeah I've got a good friend yeah I've got a really good friend um yeah one of my best friends she plays for Worcester 
and she is currently doing nursing and she's basically in the similar boat to me where she has to do because of the way her degrees work she has to do two years in the Welsh NHS um once she finishes her degree so we finish at the same time and we both want to head over to Australia and for her she's seeing that so obviously rugby is a big thing for her but she's seeing that as a huge opportunity to play some different rugby whereas mm. other people will I know another I've got another friend who considered it but then was actually like no I don't want to leave the premiership like this is everything to me I don't want to the premiership is the best league in the world um the premiership here mm. um and she's like no I don't want to leave that behind which I think I think we can we can bring her around and get her to come over um with us but uh it's interesting to see different people's perspectives on the rugby available like some Australian rugby is obviously very very impressive yeah. mm. um especially their sevens team is just phenomenal um and an opportunity to go over there and to do something like that is pretty cool that's so this one friend is just like that would be phenomenal to go over yeah. work as a nurse in Australia live the Australian lifestyle and play the Australian rugby way it's just so so cool and I would love like sounds like that, that I'd really love to that'd be such a cool experience anyway whether like regardless of how long you stay right like, yeah 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 a lot of people go out for a couple of months as I said to play um in their sevens league and then head back over and come back and rejoin our premiership um after that sweet well that all sounds very exciting first of all and secondly i thought you're retired you sound like you're doing a lot more sport now than ever <laughs> yeah literally the hours are still the same it's just the pressure without just no pressure yeah, yeah. Like, this time i finish the game and i go to the pub like before i finish the game i'd like stumble back into central london and curl up in bed <laughs> yeah yeah well sounds sounds ideal now <laughs> yeah what a life i love it yeah well thank you so much for coming on i know that we took up a lot more time a lot more of your time than we when we thought but we always seem to run over with these but yeah we i mean i certainly got a lot i know you Sean, probably did as well no thank you very um, much for coming on that was was a, a really good conversation Absolutely. And every time, like um, Connor and I are like, okay, we'll, we'll make it a 40 minute one this time. And then it just never happens because we've just never people we bring on, like, we've just got so much to talk about. Oh, so, yeah, no, honestly, go on. It's because, like, one question and then you answer it so well, and then it just leads <laughs> into like five more questions, and you're just like, Fuck, which one do I ask? Which one do I ask first? But yeah, it's literally like you the, guys. The more you find out, the more questions you have. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for for giving up your time. Um, hopefully, we'll have you on. Well, we're hoping to kind of revisit some of these podcasts as well. So it'd be great to have you on awesome. in the future. Just basically an update of of Rowan's life and uh, yeah. where you're at now. And hopefully- Australian from Australia. Australia. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, thank yeah, you so much. That was for amazing. Time. Um, it's really nice to catch up with you guys as well. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Oh, All right. Thank you so much for having me guys. No worries. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Rowan, thank you so much for coming on and we should catch you on the next one. So Yushwan, do you want to plug where people can find you? Yeah, so on Instagram, I am at yushon.su.eventing. On Facebook, I am yushonsueventing. And my website is suyushoneventing.com. What about you, Connor? 
Mine is at Connor Lift Stuff on Instagram and at Stoic Strength Systems on Instagram. And we was also just set up a Patreon under the same name, Stoic Strength Systems. So give those a follow. I will put the links all down in the description if I figure out how to do it. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure you like, share and subscribe to the podcast on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you next